I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Welcome. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation, and this is uh, moving into the second year of seminars about long-term thinking. Uh, I want to tell you uh, now a little bit about next month's uh, next month, we're back to Second Fridays. It'll be January 14th. And it'll be uh, someone we've wanted to get from the very beginning, a fellow named James P. Kars, who's the author of a book called Finite and Infinite Games. It's one of the smallest, uh, most powerful books I think ever written. Uh, a lot of us absolutely have been dancing to it for a long time. Uh, my book out in the other room, The Clock of the Long Now, the last chapter is called The Infinite Game and is basically a riff on uh, Jim Carse's book. Uh, Kevin Kelly got in touch with him. Kevin has been tracking on that book very closely for years. And uh, I talked with Jim Carse two weeks ago and invited him to come and speak in January, January 14th. He'll be here. And I said, you know, there's this prospect of religious war that we seem to be facing these days. And how does that look in context of the infinite game? Jim Carse used to teach religion at NYU. He was very popular, actually a celebrated teacher there. And he said, uh, funny you should ask, that's my next book. And so the topic next month is religious war in light of the infinite game. It should be a, a wowser. We'll be uh, not in this room and not in the usual conference center. We'll be in Cowell Theater, so we'll have the searchlight going outside. Uh, it's a nice big theater, and uh, Jim is one of the few who doesn't have slides to show. He has stories to tell. That's what he does. Another point of explanation, those of you who are here for the first time, the way we do questions at these things is uh, use the back of the introduction card and uh, write your questions at any time, hand them to somebody in one of the yellow hats, the volunteers, at any time during the lecture or during Q&A afterwards. And Kevin Kelly and I will go through ones and pick out the, the most interesting to, uh, to, to go after Ken Dykewald with. Um, we've had a couple cell phones go off recently. <laughs> so now's a good time to hit the silencer. Back in the early 90s, Ken Dykewald did a book called Age Wave and now runs an organization based here in San Francisco called Age Wave. And usually he's speaking to corporate audiences, to government audiences, to people who are basically realizing that the demographic in the United States is changing profoundly. Uh, we're getting more and more people who are living longer and doing stuff differently with their extended health. It's not just that they're taking a longer time to die, it's that they're, they're uh, staying fresh and engaged and having sequences of, of uh, careers, sometimes marriages, sometimes sets of children. And uh, a society that was built around a uh, 70, 75-year lifespan is not completely up to that. So that's changing. We had a talk last month from Mike West 
on the prospects of human life extension. And he was talking about young blood in a very serious way where you can rejuvenate the blood of an older person and that rejuvenated blood will go around and rejuvenate the organs and tissues that it encounters. Just one of a half a dozen major uh, strategic paths that uh, lengthened human health, lengthened human life is coming and is coming fast. So we set up this sequence of talks to be first my quest talking about the prospects of human life extension and then uh, the uh, aging expert Ken Dykewald to talk about the consequences and that's what he's doing tonight, Ken Dykewald. Stuart, let's see if this microphone is on. That's, is that too loud or the right sound? Good. I'll tell you what, before I get started, um, let me just ask you folks why you've come tonight. Sounded interesting. Well, what? To learn something. Anything you particularly wanted to learn? Life extension. Okay. Any other reason for coming this evening? Who's speaking? If I could? oh hi. <laughs> Possibility. Okay. Living forever. Who actually would like to live forever? Really, who would prefer not to live forever? We bring the sound down, it's got a little bit of bounce going on. Great. So we've got a little more don't want to live forever than uh, want to live forever. Uh, how many of you, if you could put in that depends, you, you might be willing to play with that equation a little bit? Okay. Good. We'll get to that. What, what else uh, have, has brought you here this evening? Yes. Okay. Good. We'll touch on that. Yes, we'll go there and then we'll come back. Yes. Excellent point. Yes, and you, sir. The topic is a frontier. Good. Yeah, great points. Yeah. What would it do to totalitarian regimes if what? The leader could live forever or if people live longer? I was, uh, I've got a very close friends in an organization called Esalen Institute, which is sort of in some ways kindred spirits, and I was with. Michael Murphy and I said, the only person I know of that's had reign over an institution as long as you is Fidel Castro. So, so what would it be if people live longer? Does that, lean, does that lend itself to a particular kind of uh, political infrastructure or circumstance? Any other? Yes, way in the back.
Great question. Good, good, great points. One more, we got room for one or two more? Yes, please. Yeah, isn't this interesting? You make a good point, which is the complexity of the audience. You've got about 10 different themes that were just put out there versus all the same. So these are all parts of this interesting dynamic. And there are many more which we're going to touch on. Yes, there was another hand there. Yes. I think this would lead to three or four year long orgasms because there was nothing, nothing. Uh, or, or, yeah, actually, I, I, was, I had a lucky moment this week. I was uh, given an award. Uh, yes, that was a peculiar segue right there, but I was given an award with Gloria Steinem. She and I received, Ramdas, Gloria Steinem, and myself received an award this Wednesday evening at a special banquet. And uh, so I spent Wednesday and Thursday evenings with Ms. Steinem, who's now 70. And she talked a lot about the idea of being a sexual being at 70 or 90 or 100. And uh, I'm going to touch on that a little bit tonight as well. But I'm not going to tell you when, so you'll have to make sure you stay, stay alert for that part. One more? Well, we got two more, yeah. an interesting point. If you knew you, could, you had 100 years, would you be in such a hurry to try to get everything done by the time you were 40 or 50? Uh, think about that. Great question. I'm going to touch on that tonight. There was one more hand here. Yeah, hi. Really? 114, that's a lot of years. I gave a talk um, a few years ago in Los Angeles, and uh, I, I'm out in front of about 100,000 people a year, so I've been out in front of about 2 million people in my career so far. That's a lot of folks. And um, so I usually pace around before I speak because I'm trying to organize my thoughts. And uh, Although I would tell you, I've never given a presentation in my career yet before tonight in my actual clothes, my jeans. Usually I dress up like a grown-up and wear a tie and do those. Kinds. So this is a breakthrough night for me here. Um, so... Well, I live here in the Bay Area, so I thought I ought to come as myself. Why not, right? Um, so I'm about to give this talk, and I'm pacing around outside the auditorium, and there's about 1,000 people inside, and a guy comes up to me, and he says, you're Ken Dykewald, right? And I says, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be. And he says, well, I've been following your work, and I'm a fitness instructor, and I've got one of my clients in the room. I would really like you to come in and meet him. And I said, you know, I'm about to start. I really don't have time. Um, maybe afterward, he says, no, 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 you've got to really meet this guy. So I said, fine, let's, let, let, let's do that. So I came in. And he introduced me to this guy who stood up and I shook his hand. True story. And he looked about 75. I'm, you know, I'm working in the field of gerontology. This is my fourth decade. I've just begun in this field. So I've, been, I've met a lot of interesting people of various ages. And um, he looked around 75 to me. He was pretty fit. He was lean. Had two hearing aids, beautiful blue eyes, very clear of mind, it seemed. His name was Ben. So I said to him, Ben, I understand you've been working out. He gave me a big handshake. He says, yeah, I've just gotten into it, and I'm feeling really great. I says, how long have you been working out now? He says, well, I go five days a week, but doing it for two years. I said, that's great. I says, well, why at this age did you start? And he says, well, I was starting to lose my energy, and I really wanted to you know, be strong for what was coming. I said to him, how old were you when you started working out? And he says, 100. He was 102, just getting into the fitness thing. 
And I'll, I'll add one other piece to the story. Um, that the next year, uh, he entered into the Senior Olympics in the centenarian category. And every single event in which he uh, participated, he set a new world record. <laughs> and, you know, he threw the shot put, you know, two feet, new world record. You know, ran the 100-yard dash in like a minute, but it was a new world record. And I, in a way, that was sort of a metaphor for me of the future, which is those of us who are 70 or 90 or 100 or 110 in many ways are really the frontiers, men and women, of uh, the new frontier. And the new frontier is not about youth. I'm here to tell you I don't believe it's about technology. I think it's about longevity. And I also believe that the longevity revolution, at the end of the day, will have a bigger impact on who we are, how we think, how we feel, what we do, how long we do it, how long we love, who we love, how many careers we have, the in economic infrastructure of the global community, leadership, than either the industrial or technological revolutions of previous centuries. This is a very big one. So what I'm going to do this evening, uh, first of all, I, I want to say that um, I'm here because Stuart invited me. I, I, I don't usually uh, very often speak at sort of open events or local gatherings, but uh, Stuart Brand is, for me, an icon of big thinking, of grand events, has been a part of so many different movements and activities. And I would also point out that when I was 23, I wrote my first book, Body Mind, when I was 22. And when I was 23, I, I moved to Berkeley to work with a woman named Gay Luce to create a project that we ultimately called the SAGE Project. But when we started it, uh, there were a group of us that formed a study group, and we didn't know anything about anything, but we made up this word holistic, so we called ourselves the Holistic Health Council, from which, you know, it was Ken Pelletier and, my, and Gay Luce and myself and Eric Pepper and Len Duell and Stanley Kellerman and characters like that. And um, we didn't know how to set ourselves up as a not-for-profit, so there was this fabulous fellow that came along and gave our group a few thousand dollars and helped us get set up, and it was Stuart Brand. So, in, you know, in the wonderful way that the world turns and twists on itself, here I am, uh, I'm 30 years later, I guess, 31 years later, being thankful to Stuart. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wander through a variety of themes. I figure since I'm not getting paid, uh, I can uh, sort of try new things out this evening. And if it doesn't work out, you can't complain that I got paid too much. So... Um, <laughs> My interest is less in how to live to be 100 or 500. To me, that's reasonably uncomplicated, uh, relatively uncomplicated. My issues have always been, so then what? You know, early in my career, I was not only interested in sort of the wellness side of health and longevity, but also all the technological breakthroughs that might be coming. I served as an advisor to the U.S. Congress in the early 1980s where we spent uh, several years studying the impact of various medical technologies on the future of global demography. And at that point, it became obvious to me that people were going to be living longer and longer. That seemed to me to be pretty easy a consideration. The more interesting one was, well, what does that do to the family? How long are you work for? Uh, when is a person a senior? When does old age begin? What do you do with all those extra years? How do you go back to school? How do you contend with a society that's reasonably disrespectful towards aging and is deeply gerontophobic to begin with? Um, who am I as an individual when I'm 20 or 50 or 70 in a longer life? So tonight I'm going to wander through a number of those themes. Uh, parts of it will be hopefully amusing. Other parts might cause you to think about everything you think about differently. That would be my goal. 
that at least one point during the course of this evening, for each of you, I will get someplace inside of your head and move things around. <laughs> Starting right there. Uh, do I want to stop the scan? Yes. Finished. Okay. done the entertaining part, so I thought I would start out with, uh, with some paintings that I've actually never shown publicly before. Maybe some of you are familiar with these. These were done in 1842 by Thomas Cole. It's called The Journey of Life. There's a four-part series, and I'll, I'll, I'll quickly tell you what, what, what they look like to me. They may look like some of you are much more artistically sensitive than I am, but this is the first one, and it's meant to reflect the beginning of life infancy, perhaps childhood. And as you can see, you've got this child in a state of kind of joy and, and uh, on this uh, boat, and there's an angel uh, seems to be steering. You're, you're taken by the clarity of the flora and fauna and, and the immediacy of, uh, of all these wonderful colors. And it's sort of the beginning of life uh, in this painting. And then you get into um, young adulthood. And you see that the angel has stepped out of the boat. The young uh, being has got his or her hand on the rudder, seems to be steering his or her own ship. Uh, you can see vast uh, dimensions and panoramas, and there's this sense of a dream uh, in one's future, you know, this sort of mystical castle. And then we hit sort of the stage that many of us are in now, sort of, uh, uh, let's call it middle adulthood, where the rudder seems to have broken, can't find the angel very easily, back up there, but not quite present. Trauma, crisis, torment, uh, uncertainty, darkness. Where's all the green stuff? See, see lots of rocks. And then you enter into the final stage of life, old age, in which the angel's returned and is sort of handing you off to another angel. And as you can see, the material world has diminished in in importance and the sort of the spiritual world beckons. Fabulous uh, paintings, you know, quite an interesting story unto themselves, but they also establish a context. And the context is you have a certain number of years, you, you do this and then you do that and then you do this and then you do that and then you're done. And um, that's an interesting model. And it happens to be the model in which most of our lives have been contextualized. So let's switch to the idea of increasing longevity. And um, you know, this idea of a fountain of youth uh, has been around for a long time. In fact, if you go to the source of many of today's modern religions, uh, they were based on the idea that there was somehow the possibility of purification of oneself. There were these uh, legends of, of magical waters, the Ponce de Leon searching for a fountain of youth, uh, extraordinary locations, spices, herbs, in fact, you know, the discovery by the Europeans of America w w was not so that they could find herbs and spices to make nifty-tasting curry, but rather these were supposedly spices that would bestow immortality, that many of the early explorers were really looking for longevity. That was the game, the idea that why is it we're sick, why is it we die, someplace, somewhere, there's a cure for that, there's a remedy, there's, a, there's some magical potion. Thousands of years people pursued uh, these anti-aging or life-extending technologies with essentially no result. It wasn't really until we started cleaning our streets that the longevity revolution kicked in. And, uh, you know, it's always interesting to me, people imagine some extraordinary breakthrough like 
was talked about by uh, Dr. West last month. But, you know, frankly, these guys made the biggest impact uh, in that thousand-year period. That our public health departments, the arrival of antibiotics, the distribution of medicine for the first time. Uh, can anybody tell me what this is a picture of? Iron lungs. If I were to show your kids this picture, they wouldn't know what it is. I mean, they'd think it was some science fiction movie. Um, excuse me? You know what that is? All right, you are. Well, clean your room when you get home if you're, in this room. If you're my kid, then. Um, I was very lucky when I was about 30, I collaborated on a book with Jonas Salk, and one night over dinner, he told me the story that in the 1940s, the belief was that the future would be filled with more iron lungs and more sanitariums because poliomyelitis was, was just going to be rampant. Uh, and keep in mind that polio was, was perceived to be you know, contagious, waterborne, so you couldn't drink out of public fountains, you couldn't go in public swimming pools, you wouldn't touch people. Imagine AIDS times 100. And then, but he thought, no, what we have to do is put an end to this disease, to this life-shortening, life-debilitating disease, had his breakthrough in 53 and 55, the inoculations began, and now most of us live in a life where we don't know anybody with polio. As a result of thousands of years of pursuit and at least one solid century of breakthroughs, we now have a lot of old people. Two-thirds of all the men and women who've ever lived past 65 in the entire history of the world are alive today. So I'm going to offer a point of view that is probably different than what you thought coming in, and I'm going to alter it a little later in my talk, but we're already in the longevity revolution. We're already experiencing life extension. It's a little bit like a sausage machine. On the one end, you put in better science, better medicine, better health, better control of the environment, whatever it is you're doing, and what comes out the other end is old people. I was on the Today Show last year, and Katie Couric asked me, well, how would we know the longevity revolution is happening? And that's a really interesting question, because you don't live longer now, credit to Nathan Pritikin, you live longer then. So if you were to have your life extended, you'd still be the same age you are right now. So how do you know? Well, how do you know there's a longevity revolution happening? Because you're at the gym and there's a 72-year-old lady on the treadmill next to you and she's going faster than you are and she's not sweating. <laughs> because 250,000 people took elder hospital courses last year. Because people are now thinking of second careers after they retire. Because grandparents go skiing with their grandkids. Because people go through identity crises at 40 and 60 and 80. These are all the signs and symptoms of a revolution that's already underway. If you look at this chart, I think you have to be struck by the fact that over the past 1,000 years, the average life expectation, which 1,000 years ago was 25 at birth, and on the first day of the 20th century was 47, we've had quite a remarkable leap in the last century. It may be we think, oh, we're just so used to it, it's no big deal. That's a very big deal. I'm going to put this in context. Uh, I'm going to back this up for the Stuart Brand type thinkers in the room, and show you the average life expectation at birth charted over the past 100,000 years. <laughs> Medical anthropologists now tell us that throughout 99% of all human history, the average life expectation worldwide has been less than 18 years. So the point of it is, is that throughout all of history, people didn't age, they died. Some people lived to be 40 or 60 or 80, but they were very rare. 
You know, in order for me to sort of get to where I need to be, hold on to the questions. I hope there'll be a bunch of them. Now, this is at birth. I'm sure one of the questions is, well, yeah, but if you're already 40 or 50, have you really been a beneficiary? Or have things changed? The truth of it is that the numbers of people now who will and can expect to live to 50 or 70 or 90 is multiplied. By the way, I would also tell you that um, if I were to name the 20th century, I'd call it the age wave century or the longevity century. The most extraordinary change that has happened in human evolution over the past 100,000 years is right there. Now we get up in the morning expecting, expecting to live 75 or 80 or 85 years. Humans never did before. We are the beneficiaries of a longevity revolution. In fact, since, it's actually since 1850, but if you look at from 1900 forward, for every decade that's passed, the average life expectation at birth has elevated about two and a half years. Now, that's an interesting dynamic because if you look at things like Social Security and Medicare, uh, there are certain assumptions upon which economic infrastructure are built. And one of the assumptions, which, by the way, nobody asked either presidential candidate in the last election, which I find just absolutely unbelievable, is what are the assumptions upon, of longevity upon which these infrastructures are built? And by the way, you should know that they're based on the assumption that there will not be one breakthrough in medicine in the next 50 years. That 50 years from now, the average life expectancy will be about two, maybe three years higher than it is now. Trivial. So the interesting point is, what if we live, what if it just keeps going at this pace? It means that if you're already 50, and the average life expectancy for a 50-year-old is in the 80s, but if it keeps elevating, by the time you're 80, that's three decades, so that's another seven and a half years up, so it might be 90 by then. And if you happen to have a little bit of education, a little bit of money, and you can uh, take care of yourself a little better than the average person, living to 90 or 95 for just normal folk is not that extreme. Now, that's not nearly as dramatic as some of the technologies I'm going to tell you about a little bit later, such as the ones Michael West has been involved with, where there's some radical shifting. But just the idea that we're even talking about many of us living 90 or 100 years is quite extraordinary. When most futurists picture the future, they somehow have this dark spot, this blind spot about aging. And so the future is usually a Jetsons future. Young people in in their rocket ships with skin-tight outfits. This is not the likely future. But if I know this is a Friday evening and we've got a Bay Area crowd here. If you feel up to it, I can actually show you a picture of the future if you think you're ready for it, you guys. You ready to go? All right, here we go. The gal there in the blue dress is Sarah Knaus. Uh, she's 118. Sitting across from her is her daughter Kitty. She's 95. Standing up in the back is her grandson Bob, who's 73. They probably call him Skippy in this family. Um, there's Kathy. She's the great-granddaughter at 49. Then you've got Christina, who's the great-great-granddaughter at 27. And little Bradley is the sixth generation at three. This is the future. By the way, it's not nearly as glamorous as the future in which everybody looks like they're 18. But it is the likely future, as some of you hinted at with your questions. The idea of having four, five, six generations alive at once. Have we gone as far as we're going to go? I don't think so. I think we're in about the second inning of a nine-inning game with regard to this longevity revolution. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of magazines that have done this. One side of the face is youthful. The other side of the face is 30 or 40 years older. Um, This notion of can we somehow manipulate aging, or since most people if anybody has ever died of old age, 
what people seem to die from are diseases, is it conceivable that uh, more of us might have the chance to live out our biologic potential of about 120 years, and the way to get to that is to move away or compress the diseases that knock us down so that we can you know, do the Oliver Wendell Holmes one-horse Shea thing and live 100 years in a day and then have everything disintegrate. Because what's knocking my mom and dad out and our elder relatives is, is not so much aging, it's disease, it's decay, it's decline, it's illness, it's the wearing out of the parts. It's a little bit like having two cars that you buy on the same day and one of, you know, I give one to you and I take one and I take terrible care of mine and I ding it up and I don't change the oil and you take really good care of yours, although maybe it'll be the opposite, I don't know if you're a car, car person. But, so at the end of 10 years, our cars are both 10 years old but mine is kind of falling apart, and yours is still in pretty good shape. So more and more we're having to separate out what is aging and what is disease, because we have two conceivable games to play. One of them is to eliminate or postpone disease so that we live out our potential. The other is to alter the aging process itself. I'm going to get back to both of those later on. Another interesting point that I want to mention, because for me this issue is, is it's got so many arms and legs to it, I want to at least have us appreciate some of the dimensions. Um, when I got involved in the field of gerontology, old people were poor. Um, a third of the elderly lived below the poverty line in the 1960s. Turns out today the elderly are the richest segment in our society. Got the lowest poverty level of any age group in the country. It's 10.4%. As a point of reference, young people today have a poverty level of 21%. Madison Avenue still tends to think that youth have all the money, uh, as it turns out, you know, 60-year-olds tend not to look like this anymore. They increasingly look like this. In fact, if you break it out by the 50-plus population, people over 50 now control 70% of all the wealth in, in regions like Europe, much of Asia, certainly North America. Last year, they bought 55% of all the luxury cars, 80% of all the luxury travel, 74% uh, of prescription drugs, 62% of over-the-counter medicines. Uh, by 25% of all the toys, mostly for grandchildren. What you've got is a very interesting phenomenon, which is that the older segment of our society has become the most affluent. They own 80% of all the money in savings and loan institutions. 66 cents on every dollar invested in the equity markets is invested by people over 50. Which then makes us ask a very interesting question, which is, how come they're getting all the discounts? <laughs> Because if you can at least sometime when you're driving home or you're taking a shower or you're thinking about things, if you can think that one through, it's a very interesting puzzle. And it has really nothing to do with elder poverty, which is a myth. There are segments of poverty among older people, particularly among people over 75, particularly women of color. But in general, the average 65-year-old American is doing really well. And that's a great triumph of the fact that the Dow has multiplied 40 times in the course of their lives, the fact that benefits have multiplied from entitlements, the union negotiations after the war put some people in better circumstances, and also this is a generation that, having grown up in the shadow of the Depression, was very inclined to save because there was this fear of something catastrophic happening. And now they find them, and by the way, property values have grown between 5 and 700% in the course of their lives, and so it, it's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. By the way, there's a lot of people in my field of gerontology, shh, don't tell anybody that older people have money. Come on, let's tell the truth here. Got a lot of young people who have no medical insurance at all. The average older person gets 7,000 bucks a year at benefits. The last election, how come we weren't talking about making sure that young people got prescription drugs? 
Why? Because people tend to vote their age. About 30% of 30-year-olds vote, 50% of 50-year-olds vote, and 70% of 70-year-olds vote. And so one of the great peculiar dynamics going on is that while the marketplace has remained youth-focused, politically we have become a gerontocracy. We are a gerontocracy. The candidates know who to play to. They know. You want to win votes? Here's the group you tell them you're going to give them more stuff. That generates a very interesting set of considerations because when our founding fathers and mothers constructed this interesting uh, democracy of checks and balances, there was concern about church and state, about political parties, about different dimensions of government, and they were all uh, extraordinarily sort of set up to keep each other in line. Life expectancy was 35 the day the Declaration of Independence was signed. Some people were 50 and 60 and 70, but they were very few. And so it never really occurred to the Founding Fathers that there might be a time when 25-year-olds and 75-year-olds would have their interests imbalanced in the political sphere. So what happens if we have a world where there's increasing numbers of older people who are increasingly self-centered and self-indulgent, who basically want the resources to be spent on them, can't even imagine that not being fair? What does that do? Well, it's already happening. Last year, from federal taxes, for every dollar spent per senior, there was 11 cents spent per child. Now, I'd love to have somebody explain to me how that's fair. So the kids are in schools that aren't so great, and people don't want to be teachers, and after-school programs have no funding, and people don't even make the connection. Do I respect older people? I've spent 30 years of my life advocating for them. Do I think there's some dishonesty going on? Yeah. Generates another interesting question, which is how old is old? Because the answer to this question turns the entire social and political and psychological and economic infrastructure of the modern world. Right now, we use the number 65. Why? Well, because in the 1880s, Bismarck was crafting Europe's first pension plan, and he had to pick an age at which people would be so enfeebled, so disabled, they really couldn't work. Life expectancy that year was 45. So if we were using the same equation today, we'd be retiring people today, if we simply added 20 years, at 97. So, but we, we call people old at 65, and they become eligible for old age benefits. So what's 65 today? Well, Sophie Loren is 65 today. Uh, to give you a frame of reference, when Whistler painted his mom, she was right around 65. So this is, this is one of those kind of multiple choice deals there. Um, John Glenn went up into space at 77. I testified with Senator Glenn uh, about two months ago uh, in front of the Senate. And this guy's totally cool. I mean, and when, you know, when he went up and announced he was going up into space, uh, I was asked by CNN to do the original commentary. What did people think of that? And he took a lot of uh, criticism because people said it was a publicity gimmick to try to get funding for NASA. And he had a really interesting reaction. He said, wait a minute. Just because I'll be 77 doesn't mean I don't have dreams. Like, wait a second, wait a second. What's that, a 77 who still has other things they want to do? I thought the dreams were for young people. The dreams are what you had when you were young, and then you either succeeded them or failed, and then you kind of passed the time before you died. 77-year-olds with dreams? 
That's a piece of the longevity revolution. By the way, it may be your mom who wants to learn how to surf the internet at 81. You know, it may be your cousin who's trying to fall in love because her husband passed away at 62 of cancer. It may be, uh, you know, the 90-year-old who's, who's trying to make some new friends. It's hard to imagine, but the new frontier is old. Maturity is the new frontier. And so, what is a 77-year-old? Sean Connery is still considered a sexy guy in his eighth decade of life. Uh, Lena Horne still touring in her ninth decade of life. And um, I'll ask you a simple question here. If I were to do a survey today, and your job was to come up with an age for the 21st century, not the 19th century, that marked the beginning of old age, if there could be an age, but let's say your job was to pick one, and you could either pick 65, 70, 75, 80, or 85. Let's do a vote. How many of you, if you had Bismarck's job, knowing what you know now about how people are living and how long they're living and the possibilities in maturity, how many of you would pick 65? Could you raise your hand? Okay. Anybody pick 70? A couple, three hands. Anybody pick 75? Okay. Anybody pick 80? That's most of the hands. Anybody pick 85? Okay, great. Now, I've asked that question probably about 500,000 people. And the answers always come back around the same. It's somewhere around 80, 85, people think uh, old age is sort of where it begins, unless I'm talking to seniors. And they, theirs is about five years higher. <laughs> they think old age is older than them. Unless there's free stuff they can get. Because you watch the issues when whatever president says we need to raise the retirement age to 72 or 75, people go berserk. But if I were to say to you, when do you want me to think of you as an old person? You tell me 80, 75 or 85. But, but if I ask you, when do you want to get your old age entitlements, which is what those are? Oh, 50. <laughs> That's a very interesting issue, one for which societies have got to make some sense. Because if, on the other hand, older people control the vote and they want all that stuff, then you've got a peculiar kind of gerontocratic imbalance that the world has never had to encounter before. And then it's a very sensitive zone because if anyone gets up and does the anti-Brokaw and says, wait a minute, it's a great generation, but how much are they giving? How much are they getting? Let's discuss this. You get bashed. I mean, you're an elder hater. Or you're disrespectful of seniors. I'm not. I think they're fabulous. There's a lot of really incredible older people. But old age is not what it used to be. Another interesting issue. Uh, women are biologically superior to men, as you guys, I'm sure, are well aware. The female of all animal species outlive the men. So uh, what we're seeing, in, in addition to this sort of new model of maturity, is that, guys, I'm going to upset you here. When we pass away, these women, these new modern women of this uh, new era, go through a period of very deep grief and bereavement for about a year and a half. <laughs> And, and, then, you know, and then they pick themselves up and they're very thankful for the insurance policies we took out and they often you know, rejiggle their investment portfolio often to get better re returns and um, they form into these silver-haired Amazonian tribes and um, 
you know, and don't be surprised if in the future groups of women uh, start communes together. And I don't mean that, you know, Jimi Hendrix posters on the wall lying on the floor. I mean, what, why do you, what's with this Noah's Ark thing? See, the Noah's Ark model worked when there was one boy for every girl. Or that was supposed to be the right thing, but there's not enough guys. So the three women saying, let's get a house together. Let's be friends. You know, why not? What's wrong with that? Well, because you've got a little bit of a leftover of the depression mentality where having your own home with no borders was considered a great sign of success. Our grandparents, that really mattered. Your own home. So now you've got about, you know, 20 million seniors living all by themselves in big houses or big apartments. Lonely. Why not live with friends? Why not get a bunch of people you really care about and build a complex together in the mountains or get a place in Manhattan or have three places? But the idea of women and little tribes of women becoming the new power bases of the future is obviously going to happen. You see it when you go to retirement communities. Five women will be in line going to the movies together. They go out every Tuesday night. Or on cruise ships, you know, be a group that travel. One gets sick, they nourish and caregive her. They have investment circles. So you might say, wait a minute, I heard this guy was supposed to talk about life extension. I am. Another interesting challenge, because Madison Avenue, uh, you know, in, in 1946, was what, about a million television sets and modern marketing and advertising hadn't yet risen, uh, you know, risen up. And then the boomers came along and youth became the thing and everybody thought that youth was the target and old people were kind of poor and silly and buffoonish is sort of the white man's version of Amos and Andy, these kind of uh, elder characters. And, but you're beginning to see, if you notice, that because of the financial wealth of the mature population, there's a whole new category of ads starting to appear uh, in the media. Here's an example. Let's see if we can make this work. Give it a second. Oh, back it up. I don't know why that worked earlier. Um, you mean just in the middle? Something's going on. Thanks. I knew you would be Robert, it's not too late to change your mind. No, my bags were packed. I like that one too. Um, here's the world in the year 2000. Those countries in dark blue, Europe and Japan, already have more than 20% of their population over 60. By the way, there's another piece to this puzzle that I'll only mention uh, because we've only got so much time tonight. But at the same time, 
that countries uh, are experiencing increasing longevity. Uh, essentially, the same countries are experiencing decreasing fertility. So, for example, the fertility rate that's required for a country to simply maintain its size is about 2.1 kids per couple, which is about where we are in the United States. Uh, there's not one country in Europe right now that's having enough kids to replace themselves. I was in London three weeks ago. The birth rate is 1.6. Germany is 1.5. Italy is 1.2. Japan, it just went to 1.3 last year. So you've got this amazing dynamic where you see the number of young people literally shrinking. Uh, Japan is going to depopulate. It's going to lose a third of its population between now and 40 years from now and increasingly becoming old. By the way, one of the potential solutions to that is to radically offer, alter immigration policy to balance the equation. So here's an interesting thing, and I'm not a George Bush fan, but a year or so ago, Bush said, all right, we're going to really stimulate more immigration. And people got all jazzed up about that. You can't do that. It's American jobs. Believe it or not, there are people in that administration who understand that the demographic equation is so treacherous that you need to stimulate immigration, sort of like Canada does. You go to Japan where they've got a non-immigration policy, it's very dangerous. How do you work that equation? I'm going to show you 2025. Watch the, dark, watch the dark blue. All the modernized nations of the world are about to be transformed by this age wave. And I want to make a point about it. This has never happened before. Everything about this longevity revolution has never happened before. Every single piece of it. So those of you who like innovation, those of you who like to come up with new ideas, those of you who like to think about things that, have not, that are not retreads, spend some time on this one. It's a blast. I'll add another dimension to the story because the next group of people to migrate through maturity are the boom generation. So why are you seeing all these anti-aging wrinkle creams? Because all that romancing that went on a half a century ago. There's a direct connection between the two. Let me put this in perspective. During the 1930s and 40s, I know you guys know the demographic story, so I'm just going to hit it swiftly. There was a depression and a war. The birth rate hit an all-time low. The war ended. The boys came home. 76 million kids were born in the next 18 years. And it always looks to me that half of those kids were conceived on that weekend, right over there. That was... <laughs> Keep in mind, too, that the baby boom was followed by a bust and then followed by an echo boom. We were unprepared. We didn't have enough pediatricians. I know there's a bunch of docs in the room. Uh, there weren't enough hospitals. There weren't enough you know, birthing zones. Uh, babies were being born in lobbies and waiting rooms. The kids came home. There weren't enough bedrooms because the earlier generation had half as many kids per couple. Two kids per couple, the boomer generation were part of four kids per couple families. And, you know, before you knew it, you had an explosion, not just in babies, but in young families. Now, if I would have come to you in the 1940s, let's put on your investment hat for a second. And I would have told you that every eight seconds a baby will be born. That's 10,000 a day, 4 million a year. It's going to go on for 18 years. What do you want to do about that? You might have said, well, let's do some investing. Because that's a pretty predictable phenomenon. might have said, let's invest in that Gerber's company. You would have said, I never heard of them. I would have said, they're a new company, and they're going to formulate baby food and put it in jars. And had you been a traditional thinker, you would have said, well, mothers do that themselves. They don't need to buy pre-made food. And I might have said, no, this modernization thing is going to catch fire, and these moms having four kids each are going to be so busy, they're going to buy those pre-formulated products. 
or I would have taken you to New Brunswick to the J&J company, who, which had a division uh, focused on a product they called the wound care strip. But as sidewalks were being laid down and all these little tykes were scraping their knees, many of them us, um, in 1951, they relaunched their product line under the name Band-Aid, sold a lot of them. Let's say you're interested in real estate. Might have convinced you that those farm regions were going to be turned into sprawling suburbs. Could have made some money. If you like biochemistry, I would have introduced you to Ivan Combe. I actually knew Ivan for many years. He passed away in his 80s a, a little while ago, but Ivan's son, Chris, is my age. I'm 54. Chris had a terrible case of pimples in the 1960s. And Ivan whipped up this cream that he put on his son's face and made the pimples dry up. And he noticed that Chris's class was overcrowded. And he did some homework and he saw that there were 4 million kids born that year and the next and the next. And it occurred to him there was going to be sort of an avalanche of pimples coming. So Ivan, I've, and by the way, in the 1960s, if you had acne, you could not self-medicate. You had to get a prescription product or rub alcohol on your face. You couldn't go to the store and buy Clearasil, which was Ivan's product. Say so you like the food service business, I would introduce you to uh, an old geezer guy. That's what they call people who worked in their 50s. He was 56. He sold blenders in Southern California to diners, a guy named Ray. But he spent so much of his time in these restaurants, he noticed that all these teenagers, and there seemed to be a real lot of them, always were in a hurry. So it occurred to him that what the world needed was fast-eating restaurants. And his friend says, you're crazy. We already eat too fast. But Ray Kroc licensed the McDonald's Brothers Hamburgers, and the rest was history. Boomers also went through their rebellious period. Every generation had a little spell of rebelliousness, but when you got 76 million kids going through it at the same time with a little bit of affluence, it, it can become a revolution. Generation also split out from its parents during that period, having to do with a war, having to do with philosophy of global intervention. Uh, it was a peculiar time to come of age. The time not particularly to trust leadership. To, you know, what are they telling us? Are there lies here? A peculiar strain to this generation is their willingness to believe that they're being lied to by authority figures and therefore their willingness to go around the traditional. Keep that in mind when we get in a little while to the idea of buying longevity. Sometimes people say to me, gee, Dr. Dyke, well, where were you in the late 60s? And this was 1967. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, for any of you who uh, want a historical reference, and came out to California. And, uh, three years later, here I am. Um, <laughs> I would like to make another brief uh, statement about uh, California. Um, I came to California in 1970 for the psychological climate. I, came, I lived in Big Sur until uh, I was 74, then moved to Berkeley, and now my family lives in Orinda. And I came out here for the psychological and intellectual climate, which, uh, and, I, and I am probably entirely out of line with what I'm about to say, somehow it seems to have evaporated in the last 10 or 15 years. It's somehow we got all caught up with uh, technology, which was really great, and then that created a big sucking sound, and, and it became about money, and it became about flash, and it became about quick ideas, and somehow the psychological and intellectual climate, where did it go? Um, and so when Stewart indicated that he was partly, and many of you here, uh, trying to bring back sort of an intellectual environment of new ideas and interesting people and, you know, not a lot of money being thrown at folks to just kind of knock things around, I thought, boy, wouldn't it be great to be a part of that again? Uh, you know... Um, and I want to emphasize, I'm not referring to a particular movement, a particular preference. I'm just referring to, for me, 
the attraction of California was not the nice weather, although that's great, or the fact that you know, we've got a, you know, some cool attractions here. And there was the idea that there were ideas that were being stirred here. There were big thoughts being thought. And uh, I'd love to see more of that back in this great part of the world. Uh, now the boomers, of course, are between 40 and 58. And all of a sudden, we're, you know, they're starting to look at maturity and the you know, possibility of the end of their life. And, and marketers are beginning to try to figure out, how do you age up with the boomers? So let's see if I've learned something here. Come those darn hippies again. Test one, two, one. Check, check. Okay. Stay away from the green pesto sauce. It's a real bummer. Is that you, Sunflower? Pig pen? I'm going to place hasn't changed in 25 years. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame. You know, they should have put in some condos by now. I'm on a low-sodium, low-fat diet. Well, how do you feel? Terrible. The green marble goes in the upstairs bathroom. This is the anniversary of a historic event. Which one? Watergate. Boy, so think back to when you were a kid, what you thought 50-year-olds were. Uh, a clarification. Average age of the Rolling Stones right now is 60. So this is one of the interesting pieces. Some of you know my background. I initially went to school to study physics. I switched uh, my doctorates in psychology. I've now worked in the field of gerontology for 30 years and uh, less 20 of them in, in business. And so I've got sort of some different hats. I'm not sure that any of them ever fit on any particular day. But if I put my psychologist hat on, I tell you that one of the biggest challenges I think people have is that when, when they envision the future of aging, they think of their grandparents. They think of the way 60-year-olds used to be. Our parents and grandparents uh, grew old in the past with yesterday's fashions, yesterday's medicines, yesterday's point of view about who you could be when you were 70. You're going to grow old in the future with tomorrow's breakthroughs and tomorrow's role models and tomorrow's possibilities. This is what 60 now is. Mick Jagger is a grandfather. I always say Keith Richards over there on the right looks to me somewhere between 105 and 110. <laughs> Give you another example. Um, 1973, Karen Graham, global spokesmodel for Estee Lauder. She was 26. At the end of the year when she turned 27, they fired her, told her she was too old. This was the Twiggy era. So... Um, I was in Switzerland recently uh, with Leonard Lauder, and he was all excited to show me the new Lauder spokesmodel for the 21st century, Karen Graham. 55, same woman. So she was in at 26, out at 27, in again at 55. One last example. 70s, the rock and roll events were sponsored by the cola companies, you know, kind of Beach Boy Summer of Love Tour sponsored by Coke, Pepsi. 80s and 90s, the beer companies got involved, you know, Metallica headbanging tour sponsored by Budweiser. When Earth, Wind, and Fire went out on their global reunion tour recently, Viagra was their sponsor, so. <laughs> and, and, you know, everybody's got their Viagra jokes, but the last Super Bowl, other than Janet Jackson's engineering, you know, mishap, the fact that we had to sit there and we had to really think about, now, do I want a... And I was watching the games with my son, who was 14, and he's saying, Dad, would you rather have a four-hour erection, a 12-hour erection, or a 36-hour erection? Levitra, Viagra, and Cialis dominated the Super Bowl, and it was like, if I would have told you that 10 years ago, you would have left me out of the room. 
Now, this one took me a while to figure out. I was on my 10th book before this one sort of hit me between the eyes. That people have always thought of the boomers as being this, you know, sort of demographic mass that migrate into a stage of life and sort of behave the way the folks just in front of them had. So when we were kids, you had sort of the Aussie-based family structure, and mom did this and dad did that, and everybody was sort of, you know, clean and neat. And then when it was our turn to play around with family life, we sort of started... Nobody predicted this. Shacking up, having you know, non-marital connections, you know, communes. Good news is we have returned to the Aussie-based family structure. Things are... <laughs> uh, boomers went out and, and bought cars from exactly those countries our parents had just gone to war with. Um, Germany and Japan. And Detroit never saw it coming. By the way, I think something similar is about to happen in the field of medicine. That medicine thinks it's about this. This generation is going to want that. That's what they're going to buy. We'll get to that. Uh, I was involved with Iacocca. I was an advisor to Iacocca when the, uh, when the Jeep took off and when he launched a minivan. And he nailed it. He, he knew that this was a generation that needed a station wagon because we were out of the swing and single thing and we had families and kids and dogs. But we didn't want station wagons. That's what our parents had. We needed sports utility vehicles, you know, so we could hit those speed bumps at Nordstrom's without any of our bags flying out the window. Um, four-wheel drive, I mean, really. We have one, you know, everybody's got them. It's like, ugh. boy, if you could go back to a grocery store 25 years ago and look what they had on the shelf and then go today and look at the low-fat, non-fat power bars, you know, Soba this, Atkins that. I mean, there's a generation that has granulated and fractionated and made things of foods that who would have imagined, you know? Non-fat Haagen-Dazs. I mean, how could you even imagine that such a wonderful thing could exist one day? Um, so if I would have said to my, my, my dad, who was an investor in his early years, I want you to invest in these people I met. They're going to start a company. I know what my father would have said. He, they should invest in haircuts. <laughs> Because it was a basic rule of business, you could not start a business with these kind of haircuts. Would have missed out on an interesting opportunity. Um, and of course, in my view anyhow, the most extraordinary difference uh, between the boomers and previous generations are the women in our generation. They're more well-educated, more empowered, more knowledgeable, more in charge of their lives, the first women in history to be in control of their own ovulation, which is a non-trivial phenomenon. Fertility, their own bodies, knowledge, power. Um, you know, Tim Berners-Lee came along with the internet in 19, well, what, 1990. How many websites were there? One. This generation loves information. We're fueled by information. We want to be wired, Wired Magazine folks, part of this thing. We want to sort things out. We ride it. We play it. We surf it. And now we're on our way to maturity. And anybody who thinks that we're going to hit maturity the same way previous generations did, I think is missing the fun. Let me show you some numbers. If you simply looked at the demographic portrait, back in the 1950s, which age group grew, which declined, you would be drawn to youth. But look at the 1960s. Then look what happened in the 1970s. And let me know when you see a trend forming here. By the way, it is really one of the more interesting phenomena because in, in most people's thinking, they think the real big breakthrough is going to come from some new technology 
or some amazing new idea, but that demography is flat like a lake. It's not. It's upheaving. But it's doing it at the speed of life. So it's not news. It's not happening tonight. It's happening over the course of time. So if you could step back and watch it happening in fast motion and say, whoa, where are we heading? And I'll give you the 20-year spread. This is the way the U.S. and most of the modern world demographic makeup is going to change. Now, if you knew that, which you now do, you'd say, gee, what do 60-year-olds want to look like? How do 65-year-olds want to feel? What kind of cars are empty nesters going to drive? What do people want to have happen with their bodies when they turn 70? What are the clearest hills of an aging population? Somebody going to come out with a Viagra for the mind. So for me, I've said this for years, it's like you've got a 76 million pound elephant that's migrating across the lifeline, which only goes one way, and yet for the past half century, the way most people have pursued this elephant, they wait for it to pass, and then they shoot arrows at its butt. I say, get out in front and dig a big hole. Now, adulthood and maturity, the zone where longevity begins to surface, because it's hard to know if a 22-year-old is going to be longevous. They might be a youthful 22-year-old, but it be 80 years before you know if they're going to hit 102. So this is a generation. How many of you were born between 46 and 64? Okay. We have an enormous mass. We are getting to like the idea of more life, getting anxious about physical decline, illness, disease. We've seen it in some of our friends. We've seen our parents be knocked out. What are we going to do with adulthood? First, let me lay out a map of adulthood. Different than the, well, similar here to the Thomas Cole paintings. Historically, adulthood has been linear. First you learned, of course, in youth, and then you worked and raised your family, and then you had a little leisure before you died. You learned one time. You fell in love, and it always lasted to the last breath you took. Till death do we part. You divided up the responsibilities. Honey, I'll do this, you'll do that. Kids always turned out perfect, and then right before you died, you took a cruise, and that was the package. Now, I may disappoint some of you with what I'm about to say, but I actually feel that the biggest transformation that will occur as a result of life extension will be in the way we conduct our lives, not at the end, but throughout. I think you're going to see the death of the linear life plan and the rise of what I'll call a cyclic life plan, where people will say, why not go back to school at 50? If you're in an unhappy relationship, why not try to find a new one? Want to be retired for 25 years? Why not reinvent yourself? And this is a very interesting issue. I, you know, I, 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 I'll tell you how this one played out for me. I, I got very lucky last year. I, I got featured on 60 Minutes. So I went to New York, and, and Morley Safer walked me around, introduced me to the other people on the show, and he said, all right, Ken Dyquall has talked to more people about aging than any human being in the history of the world. That was the way he introduced me, which may actually be true. And I said to him, he says to me, tell me the most interesting thing you can surmise from all that before we went on the air. And I said, I have yet to have one person say to me, after speaking to two million people, all the living former presidents, many world leaders, I have yet to have one person say to me, I like the idea of greater longevity because I'd really like to be old a long time. 
He said, what do people say to you? They say, gee, if I'm going to live longer, I'd like to go back to school. Or if I'm going to live longer, I'd like to be young longer. Or I'd like to be middlescent for 50 years. Or I'd like to learn the internet. I'd like to start a new company. So that's a very interesting issue. Does longevity cause people to want to be old for an extended period? Or does it give people a different view of the entire horizon of their own life with the possibility that there's time for late blooming, second chances, new beginnings, do-overs, downshifting, upshifting. You know, the corporate CEO who becomes a sculptor, the sales and marketing manager who becomes a school teacher. You know, the former president, Jimmy Carter, who uh, became a humanitarian and an author. It's going to look more like this, by the way. By the way, I've got to tell you, you know, after having done all these books, and I know some of you are in the media, you tell the media, hey, I want to talk to you about some technology that could cause people to live to be 3,000. They want to cover that. But the idea that we're going to have an entirely different kind of life at 40 and 60 and 80, it's not as juicy. If you look up uh, Webster's on it, by the way, is it too warm in here because we've got the door closed and a lot of people, are you guys, should we open the door a little bit? Or are you guys okay? Let's get a little, can we, I know, turn the heater off and I think we're almost baked, so get a little fresh air, we'd feel a little more comfortable. By the way, you guys still doing okay? You still with me here? I'm not through the story yet, but I'm building it. Um, if you look in Webster's Underbridge Dictionary under the word retirement, which is a word that got largely empowered through the creation of Social Security, which I want to emphasize was not designed so that older people could have a lot of fun in their later years. It was designed because 25% of the American workforce was out of work during the Depression. And Roosevelt was a very smart fellow. He knew that unless he moved the old people out by institutionalizing old age, there'd be no room for the young to get started in their lives. So retirement was created, an age was picked, and if you look up the, the definition, I think language tells us a lot, it says to disappear to withdraw, to go away. <laughs> well, that's an interesting model. So is one dimension of life extension, in which we're in the second inning, sort of a reconsideration of the idea that life is sort of like an Everest climb, where you get to the top, you're 50, you get the big view, and then you descend. And with every year, you're less. That's the model. Or might we create a different model in which people think about reinventing themselves, trying new things. You know, the 70-year-old learning a new skill, opening up parts of their mind that never existed, falling, falling more in love at 80 than they might have at 30. Is it conceivable that this untapped, uncharted frontier of maturity may turn out to be the most interesting zone of our lives? I think there's going to be a new definition of retirement. I think people are going to want to be connected in maturity. I think that this last three quarters of a century of older people kind of getting out of the playing field, going off to the sidelines, being done. You know, the average retiree last year watched 43 hours of television a week. So that's an interesting issue. If we're going to create longevity, what's its purpose? I've been to so many conferences where people talk about how to live longer. And I'm always thinking, for what purpose? 
so you can be young for 80 years? Is that progress? Or is it to become more of yourself? Grander, greater, to give back? That's another interesting issue. Because the current model for aging and longevity is that when you get old, you're done giving, now it's time to take. Maybe we should ask the question, boy, if you've got 60 or 70 or 80 years of life experience and 20 years of free time on your hands, we could sure use your help. Eric Erickson, former Bay Areaite, one of my mentors, talked about the last stages of life were about generativity, giving back. Not the current model in our culture. Older people have the lowest volunteer rate of any age group in the country. They get the most, they give the least. Nothing wrong with that. They're not quite sure what they ought to be doing with their maturity because they are the pioneers. They're just exploring it for the first time. We'll have a chance to think about it. I think personal reinvention and freedom. Imagine reaching a point in your life where you're a little bit free of some of the neuroses of your youth. You may be free of raising children. You may be free of feeling like you've got to make a lot of money or prove something to the world. You may enter into a period of life that may be the most powerful decades of your life in your 50s or 60s or 70s. Longevity will permit that. Let me show you an example. You know, 38 years ago I had a dream. And now, thanks to AGF Mutual Funds, I'm living it. That dream? To be an actor in retirement commercials. This woman? Not my wife. The grandkids? Not mine. And the dog? Hollywood! <laughs> yes, AGF has helped me achieve my retirement dream. Right, boy? Meet you AGF. All right, we're going to wander into the zone that you probably thought would be the one I'd start with, which is what's going to happen to the body. I go the other way. My feeling is what's going to happen to our lives, to our society, to our world, to our hearts, to our sense of purpose as we live longer. And we're not going to live longer in one day. You know, I'm 54 now. Maybe I'll live to be 60. Maybe I'll live to be 160. I'm not sure. But the idea is with the, with the possibility of longer life, how will I shape myself? Who will I become? And at what age does a person stop growing, becoming? Uh, before we wander into this zone, which I'm going to show you where I think it's going to wind up, let's take about a 30-second stand-up and stretch so you'll all probably feel a little more comfortable. And feel free to comment to the people nearby on what I've said so far. Those of you guys standing in the back, if you want to come and sit on the floor in the front or make yourself, if you've if you been standing a long time. How you doing? That's great. Well, all right, yeah. Good. Good. Thanks for the, uh, for the break. That's a good idea. Okay. Got a, just a little bit more to go. Before we get to our questions, so let me um, let's keep let's let's let the room cool down just a touch more if we can. I think people are still feeling warm for another few moments. 
Uh, one of the challenges is how do we feel about, I'm going to sort of uh, trifurcate aging. Uh, there's the idea of greater wisdom, greater perspective. I think people like that. There's the idea of more time. I think people like that. But I don't think people like the idea of pain, suffering, illness, disease. So here's a glimpse of a boomer ruminating about the aging process to a group of school children. Value this time in your life, kids. Volume up, please. Because this is the time in your life when you still have your choices. And it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? 40s, you grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud. One of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. 60s, you'll have a major surgery. The music is still loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. Start eating dinner at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You have lunch around 10, breakfast the night before. Spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? The 80s, you'll have a major stroke. You end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but who you call mama. Any questions? So in a, an editorial footnote, if we live longer but we have no purpose and we're just sucking down resources and we're bored and tired and uninspired, is that a good thing? Or is it conceivable that alongside this potential biologic revolution, we need to create a psychologic and social and spiritual and political revolution to marry to it? Oh, no, nope, we've already, we already been there. So, don't get upset with this next slide. Don't take it personal. Uh, imagine that you are the president of Pfizer, actually, when you see this next slide. So, we know that as we grow old, the body changes. Uh, circulatory problems, uh, arthritis of all the joints, uh, varicosity in the veins, orthopedic impairments, the bones lose mass and density, muscle mass diminishes, uh, we're inclined to obesity and weight problems because metabolism shifts. So by the way, the idea of managing weight, you haven't even begun to see that phenomenon take off in the marketplace because with an aging population, uh, the greater likelihood of cancer, errors in the body, the skin thins, wrinkles, and becomes discolored. By the way, think about if you're in the skin product world or service world. If we have an entire generation with skin that's becoming thinner, more wrinkled, and discolored, but is cool with that, that then you've got sort of a world of Maggie Cunes, who was also one of my mentors, the founder of the Great Panthers, who said, you know, we ought to be proud of our wrinkles. She used to wear a little glitter on her wrinkles so that they would sparkle. She would. She was great. Most boomers don't think of it that way. So do you not think there's going to be a multi-billion dollar zone of opportunity for people who can deliver youthful skin? Incontinence, urinary and fecal, hip replacement. I'll just, I'll get you to the punchline. We'll just glide right along here. <laughs> That's very interesting because if there's, you know, let's just even take a little thing like xerostomia, you know, dryness of the mouth. If somebody, as planner's lifesaver, is going to come up with something for the mouth to be more moist. 
possibly. Are we going to see the world of joint replacement taking off with the multiplication of the number of diabetics? Are we going to see you know, evolution of treatment of uh, insulin difficulties in the body? I mean, this, this is a map of the future. By the way, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, I don't want this stuff. Okay, how much are you willing to pay not to have it? And any one of these areas is a multi-gajillion dollar battle zone tomorrow. You probably know about the myth of Tithonius, or Tithonus in some books. The, it's a story of the beautiful goddess Eos, who, of course, was immortal, but she fell in love with a warrior, Tithonius, who uh, was going to die. So she went to Zeus and she said, um, I'm going to ask for one wish in this life. Zeus said, what's that? Grant him immortality. Allow him to live forever. Some of you said earlier, you'd like to live forever. Fine. Zeus says, done. And as she was leaving Zeus's chamber, she realized she forgot to ask for health. So as the myth goes, Tithonius got older and sicker and his bones broke. His skin rotted. He became demented. But he couldn't die. So that's an interesting issue. Are we looking to increase our lifespans, but if we don't simultaneously increase our health spans, yow! We already know that as we mature, the likelihood of chronic conditions multiplies. So that's going to put an incredible strain on our healthcare system, which, by the way, was not designed to treat aging bodies to begin with which to me is uh, at least one of the other major jokes of our political arena. And I would say an equal joke of people who are tuned into political issues that we thought Medicare was fixed because we gave prescription drug benefits. Hello? You've got a train that's going in the wrong direction. You know, putting Tootsie Roll Pops on the seats doesn't fix it. We have a healthcare system that was not designed for the diagnosis and treatment of chronic disease. Medicare was not designed to reimburse for prevention or the treatment of chronic disease or long-term care. The whole thing is sort of out of whack. Yet the average person thinks if you throw more money at it, you have fixed Medicare. Um, what are the major causes of death? Heart disease, cancer, stroke, emphysema, pneumonia, influenza, diabetes, accidents, Alzheimer's, kidney disease, septicemia. By the way, heart disease account for more deaths than all other causes combined. So if you could somehow impact the incidence of heart disease, even though, by the way, if you ask the public what do they think the biggest health fear is, they say cancer. Where do they want more research? Cancer research. Horrible disease. Heart disease is more substantial in terms of its impact on how long we live. You want to have a breakthrough in longevity? Knock out heart disease. Equally interesting is what people report they suffer from, in which pain is number one. So if you can live to be 100, but with crippling pain, is that your hope? I always find this one kind of interesting. We spend a, about a greater percentage of our GDP or per person dollars on health care than any country in the world, almost by a factor of two. So we spent a lot of money on health care. So how are we doing? Well, somebody might ask the question, other than Ryan here and others in the room have asked the question, well, if we're spending all that money in health care, are we producing health? Actually not. We don't have a terribly healthy population. And many people think the United States reigns in terms of longevity. These are all countries that live longer than we do. 
Japan, Australia, Iceland, Spain, Switzerland, Canada, Sweden, Israel, France, Greece, Belgium, Netherlands, Norway, Italy, Great Britain, Austria, Germany, Singapore, New Zealand, Kuwait, Taiwan, Costa Rica, and Finland. We're, we're, we're mediocrity with regard to longevity. Plus, our elders are ill. So, is the answer to spend more money on the existing medical system, will that produce a great result? Maybe not. We'll get to that. I went to the, when my, <laughs> you see, because I can easily envision a scenario where we find ways to keep people alive longer and longer and longer, but simply extend the incredible pain and suffering and sickness of the later years of life. So that's an interesting issue. Because if you're going to be able to modulate life extension, do you want to simply make it longer? Do you want to take the last years and extend them? Or do you want to take the healthy years and extend them and compress the sick years? In other words, if you're really the boss of all things, you'd give that some thought. Because it's conceivable we're creating a Jurassic Park. We're going to lengthen life, lengthen the diseased years. Won't dwell on these, but to give you a sense, and I know there are docs in the room, that with each decade, the incidence of various conditions tends to multiply. So if you imagine that age wave flooding into maturity, there's clearly going to be a multiplication of these conditions, unless there's some kind of breakthroughs, which is where I'm heading in a second. Let me talk about Alzheimer's just for a second. The dementia rate among the 85 and over population in the world right now is 47%. So now it becomes, how many of you read Magister Luda, you know, the idea of sort of master game? So now we come up with a breakthrough so that nobody has heart disease. It'd be fabulous. Except you're going to create 20 million demented people. <laughs> I mean, in other words, if you don't simultaneously knock out neurologic dysfunction, you're going to have long, you're going to have a, it will be the sinkhole into which the 21st century falls. I mean then honestly, there's a million people in America with HIV. It's a horrible disease. We've all lost friends, loved ones. There's four million Americans with Alzheimer's right now. And the projections are that for our generation, it will be 16 to 20 million. And worse, instead of 8 to 10 years of Alzheimer's, it will be 20 to 25 years because we will be better at managing and postponing the other diseases. So then you begin to see, wait a minute, life extension is kind of complicated. Because if you get that dial working right, but you don't get this dial working right, that's, you know, you're in Tithonius country. This is a bad disease. If I came from the future and I told you that 16 million of you were going to be beaten down by this disease, it was going to drain all of your savings, anything you hope to pass to your children, and render the last 10 to 20 years of your life to be less than what you dreamed them to be. But if you rose up now, you could conceivably alter that future. You might do it. Yet this country, is, talk about long now, I mean, it's just amazing to me that we are heading towards a future fraught with a pandemic of neurologic disease. And it's not 
the, it's not the major issue. People aren't talking about it. It's, it's, you know, we're going to get prescription drug benefits. I, I spoke, I'll tell you where the turning was for me. I, I spoke at the White House Conference on Aging in 1995. I had a great slot. I was between actually Al Gore and Bill Clinton. I was in the last evening. And all the votes were being tabulated because there were 3,000 seniors there setting the, the age and healthcare policy for the coming decades. One of the issues was to take a huge amount of dollars and give more benefits to the elderly. Another issue was take a lot of those dollars and invest them in the science so that we can wipe out the diseases of aging and people could live out 90 or 100 years without dementia, without cancer. And so I'm coming into Thursday night and I said, right before my speech, I said, show me the tabulation, where are the priorities coming in? The spending the money to prevent the diseases of aging for future generations was number 38 out of 40. And more benefits and entitlements and protections was number, were number one and two. And I said, wait a minute. If we don't begin to think about where we're heading and start to take actions early enough, we're going to wind up there. And, of course, the 85-plus is the fastest-growing segment of our population. Where do I think we're heading? A couple of themes, and I'm going to tell you which technologies I tend to think are the big ones. Uh, first, we're entering into an era of greater empowerment. Andy Grove talking about building a database of therapies, building a database of, uh, of procedures, building a database of your condition, and then putting together your own healing plan. Don't follow doctor's orders. That was a pretty radical notion. Look even in advertising. You, uh, you see that, uh, that uh, osteoporosis with postmenopausal women is a condition. So you're going to see a flood of ads. This is an Eli Lilly ad in which older women are mostly portrayed as you know, seeking to garden. <laughs> or you tend to see these kinds of, you know, you're going to scary stuff. So several years ago, uh, Procter & Gamble was launching uh, their version of an, of an osteoporosis-related product, and the senior vice president of marketing at the time was battling breast cancer as a woman. And she said these ads about gardening, about, come on, this is not it. And this was their campaign. The warrior, the ally, the weapon. This is a totally different mindset. The idea that people are thinking about, hey, this is my body, I'm not sure that you know what's best for me. Plus, I'm a shopper in this game, and I might take some of this and take some of that. By the way, we shouldn't be surprised, because, of course, this was the same generation that entered into their teenage years and then adulthood, controlling, as I said, their ovulation and fertility. Something happened for me, and I've done a lot of, about five of my books have had to do with medicine and healthcare. So it's a field in which I've worked a little more than in some others. But all of a sudden, I woke up one day, and we were talking about patients. And then they became consumers. In healthcare, they refer to what formerly known as patients as consumers. Some of the new tools that I think are coming, this is sort of the Dykewald selection. Uh, first, I made up this phrase, healthy aging, by accident. I was doing a project. I had it sponsored by, at that time, a company called Merck. Um, and I call it the Alliance for Health and Aging. I did it with Rick Carlson. Some of you are friends with Rick. And uh, when I was dictating the note, we got the, my secretary heard it wrong. She wrote it out as healthy aging, and it went out. And people said, healthy aging? You can't have healthy aging. Aging is about disease. And so the idea of healthy aging was kind of provocative. But I've got some buddies that call it anti-aging. So 
the fastest growing subspecialty of medicine right now, anti-aging medicine. I've heard people, let me back it up, I've heard people talk about it as rejuvenative medicine. The idea of somehow causing you to remain young. And we heard Michael West talk about regenerative medicine, which is almost mind-boggling. The idea that you can reverse aging, not just slow it down or halt it. What is the field going to be? Is it going to be healthy aging, which is kind of romantic? It's sort of the second generation of wellness. It's sweet. It's got no teeth. Anti-aging, which has sort of pissed off all the doctors, you know, the traditional docs in America, but they're also trying to figure out how to make the kind of money that those guys are starting to make. Is it going to be rejuvenative to make young, to keep young, or is it conceivably regenerative? I don't know. They may all be happening simultaneously. Some of the areas that I think we should track, we could all be extending our lives if we took better care of ourselves. I mean, that's sort of, I know that that's not nearly as exotic as the idea of an anti-aging transfusion of some sort. I'll give you one little story. I know I'm, I'm almost at the end. I apologize. I'm going on too long. Uh, many years ago, I had done a uh, tape series with the Nightingale Conan Company called High Performance Living. I also bought tapes from them, so I was on their mailing list. And so one day I got one of these customized form letters and it said, Dear Ken Dykewald, are you struggling with too much stress? Are you not eating what you ought to be eating? Are you not living the life that you know, will optimize your well-being? Well, then Dr. Ken Dykewald has got the program for you. <laughs> True story. And, and I thought, God, isn't that sort of it in a way, you know? I mean... You know, I mean, we could all be lowering our risk of heart disease or cancer or diabetes. We all, you know, everybody's read the books, the articles already. We kind of know we, we, we just don't do it. So that's an interesting challenge. You've got a, a generation desirous of beauty and youth, and it's also kind of gluttonous and undisciplined and wants the easy track. But that's good to keep in mind because the easy track will come as well. Fascinated by the, you know, continual proliferation of alternative medicine. Even the fact that it's called alternative. Uh, I, I personally uh, think that the world of nutrition and nutraceuticals is understated in terms of its potential, partly because it's less radical and because you can't get patents necessarily on a phytochemical, but we're learning more and more about these micronutrients uh, in foods that may actually have healing or restorative or regenerative properties. Food is medicine. There's 450 compounds currently in development that are geared to either altering some aspect of disease and aging or even retarding the aging process itself. 450. The pharmaceutical industry is interested in the way you'd like to feel when you hit 50 and 60 and 90. You may not like them. You may like them. I've got a mixed set of perspectives. I can tell you if it weren't for the pharmaceutical industry, my son would not know my father. Do they charge too much? Maybe. Do they, we not like certain things about them? Maybe. But our, you know, it's like those one, that wonderful couple that just did the movie uh, A Day Without Mexicans. It's a, a Mexican-American couple. It's a fabulous documentary. I haven't seen it, but I've read about it, where they removed all the Mexicans from California for a day, and everybody realized how important they were in our lives. If you took all the pharmaceuticals out of our lives, a lot of people you love wouldn't feel so good that day. Is it the only path? No. Could we eat better, exercise more? Could there be nutraceutical combinations? Um, I'm personally intrigued by the world of the mind. 
I think that what's going to happen to our brains in terms of Parkinsonian conditions and Alzheimer's and memory loss, uncharted territory for the neurologic sciences. So 100,000 Americans approximately right now injecting themselves with anti-aging hormones. You probably know people who are doing it. I know a lot. I don't do it. I've thought about it. My wife and I have talked about it. We've got a lot of friends. It costs about $1,000 a month. It's a combination of, usually for guys, testosterone and HGH. I think it's a little bit scary. I'm not quite convinced it's without risk. But a lot of people are doing it. It's sort of like every time I give a speech to the, you know, the rich and famous, people come up to me afterward and they say, so what are you doing? Stay young. And I know where they're going. It's sort of like in the old days, kind of like, you know, <laughs> you know, whatever people were asking. Um, of course, I did a book with Timothy Leary, so you know a little bit about my background. Anyhow, um, people say, so what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I have certain diet things and I exercise and I try to keep these things in mind. But I know where they're going. They want to know if I inject. Um, which I don't. And by the way, I say, watch what's going on in the world of sports medicine. You know, we often think that medicine will evolve from its core. I think that most evolution occurs from the perimeter, you know, from the margin. You know, you're watching all these athletes who can jump higher and more muscles and be stronger, and it's a little bit early stage stuff, but is it conceivable you'll be 60 and somebody say, look, you take this smoothie in the morning, it'll taste like your favorite fruit juice, and in it will be a combination of vitamins, minerals, and nutrients, and hormones that will cause your body to feel like it's 35 again, and it will formulate each night based on the urine that was sampled in your toilet before you went to sleep. So when you get up, you'll have the exact blend of your rejuvenation drink. Do I think that's going to happen in a decade? Of course. You can already go on drwild.com and for $300 a month get vitamins blended just for your unique physiology and stage in life. Adding in hormones is going to be a part of that when we understand it better. There's an interesting piece of my... How many of you were at Michael West's speech last month? I listened to it. I wasn't here. I thought one of the most interesting pieces of the speech was the fact that, well, there's reproductive cloning and therapeutic cloning, and you know, we probably should have called them something different. Yeah, you should have called them something different. You've got scientists who are not marketers. Uh, I will tell you that when I started in the aging field, I couldn't earn a living. So I would do training programs on creativity and innovation, and one of my clients was Lawrence Livermore Lab. And all my friends said, how can you work for a nuclear place? And I said, well, I find these are interesting characters. I want to understand. And I learned that there was fission. And the way that works is you break atomic matter apart. It, it goes crazy, and it creates explosive energy, and it leaves waste matter behind, and it's a little bit spooky. But then there's fusion, which is sort of what the sun does, and you bring atomic matter very close together, and it creates unlimited energy. But they called it the same thing. So when the anti-nuclear movement occurred, they shut down all the fusion research. It's like, we would have an entirely different world today if fusion energy were to work. We would not be in the Middle East if that were not shut down. So the scientists at places like Lawrence Lab didn't think What's happening is that the whole world of religious people is rising up against cloning. And unfortunately, they're putting therapeutic cloning in the same zone. The idea here is my dad has got diabetes. He's just gone blind and he's in his ninth inning. What if instead of being you know, tortured by all these modern therapies, 
He could go in, give some saliva, they'd grow back a new pancreas, maybe a dozen, it would cost 300 bucks over at the organ shop there next to Jiffy Lube, you know, you drive through and leave your saliva. <laughs> so you have an ailing organ, you get a replacement part, it's your own biologic match. Replacement parts from your own biology is obviously a more extraordinary solution than radiation and surgery and chemical dosing, the crazy stuff we do now. Yet I worry that therapeutic cloning is going to be halted because of the religious drama. Genomics, proteomics, the ability to actually switch, reprogram, understand your own proclivities, alter them, or at the very least match your nutrients and your pharma and cosmeceuticals to be in sync with your genetic proclivities and to adjust for them. And of course, you know, the amazing stuff, the, the amazing stuff, which is just beyond imagination, and yet so amazingly close at hand. And I want to say one thing, going back, because I'm just about at the end, to my Thomas Cole paintings. There are a lot of people who believe that it's God's order that you live a certain number of years and then you die. You start to tinker with that, that's not going to be met that will be met with a certain degree of religious concern. And there's a lot of people who feel that the purpose of life is, is afterlife. And you say you want to extend life, well then you're fooling around with the religious equation. You think the abortion issue is a big issue? Stem cells can generate a lot of discussion. And unless people who understand it, like the speakers in this program, and you can talk about the possibility of healing or preventing dementia, Parkinson's, heart disease, perhaps even aging itself, we may see one of the most extraordinary potential miracles be pushed aside. Uh, so I spoke at the Plastic and Cosmetic Surgery Convention last year. They had a big, they had a big period of growth. Um, and I'm, I'm just about at the last moment or two here, so I'm... U.S. U.S. alone, yeah. And we're world leaders in this particular area of life extension. So, true story, so there's about 3,000 people in the room, and I'm brought behind the stage. There's sort of a waiting area where they're giving out awards before I speak. And there's 10 people getting the Courage Awards, and there are 10 people getting the Best Practice Awards. The Courage Awards were people who had had some horrible thing happen to them, an explosion in the military, they had their hands blown off, their faces cut off, I mean, terrible things, and the field of reconstructive surgery had attempted to bring them to a normal life. And they were lovely people. I met them all. I sat with them. And right next to them, they were the best practice winners. These were the, they were all men, turns out, who had the most extraordinarily profitable uh, plastic and cosmetic surgery practices in the country. And they were all sitting there, and I couldn't help but notice that their wives were actually identical. <laughs> I mean, had you been there, you, you, uh, it was just, they're attractive, but identical. And it occurred to me that I'm looking at the future of medicine. On the one hand, healing the sick, the broken, the ill, fixing the problems. And on the other hand, giving people what it is they think they want for cash. And is it conceivable that longevity will be purchasable in the future, whether it be through hormones, uh, chemotherapy, stem cell technology you may have to go to Singapore for, or maybe your local doctor's got some brew they've cooked up in their back room. And wouldn't it be interesting if we had a world very different than our own in which people 
not very different, but somewhat different, because we have some of this now, but people who could afford it could buy themselves 50 more years of youth. That would generate a different kind of political and economic haves and have-nots than we have ever contemplated. I'm going to jump through this clip, actually. For I'd say a note of caution, because when you watch plastic and cosmetic surgery, it's interesting, because you go to a doc and you say, I want to do this to my face, and the doctor says, I don't think you really need that. Well, then you just go across the hall and go to the other doc. To your, your money. If we all just do a lot of that, where do we wind up? Oh, here's a shot of the future. <laughs> if that's not a shot of an alien invasion, I, don't, I, don't, I can't find a better one. Hold on. Whoop, let me get to where I'm going here. I already zipped those. I already got that. Okay, I'm at the end here. What could 75 look like? I think part of what people are beginning to think about now is do, one thing is to live to 150, which I think is very possible for, for the young people of today. And for perhaps Larry Ellison. <laughs> who, who, those of you who don't know, he's put the word out on the street that he will spend any amount of money whatsoever to not age. And there's other people like Mr. Ellison. I've never met him, but there are people who put the word out. Billion dollars, what does it take? I don't care. But other people are saying, well, maybe I'd just like to be youthful and vital and have 100 years of life extension with vitality and contribution. This is one model of uh, 70, this is another. Local doc John Turner, I hadn't seen him for, uh, for some time. As he approached 80, body changed. <laughs> and my last commercial before our questions, and one of my favorites. Seventeen miles every morning. People ask me how I keep my teeth from chattering in the winter time. I leave them in my locker. All right, so. In a, in a sense, I believe that we are in the midst of a life extension revolution. When compared to a century or two or three or five ago, we're living longer lives than humans ever imagined possible in mass. It changes all the equations. It changes everything. But I'm trying to surface the issue. It's not simply a matter of living longer. It's for what purpose? To what end? Who will I become? How does a society reconfigure itself around four and five and six generations. What are the relative purposes of stages of life? How much do people take? How much do they give? But equally important, who could you become if you'd have those extra decades? So we're going to get to questions. I'm going to ask if we can bring the lights gently up so that people are not shocked by the brightness. But let me first ask you to turn to whoever's sitting next to you and just share what about all this mass that I've just covered do you personally find particularly interesting? If you could just take a moment with the people nearby, I'm going to invite you to do that.
Are you going to ask them or am I going to read them? Uh, I'll go ahead and read them. Is that all right? Okay, we've got a, a little bit of time together still. I know it's late. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Whatever it is, come back to it with your partner. We'll uh, bring it back to one conversation for a while. Uh, with a couple of questions. By the way, there's a book out here in the uh, bookshop that, uh, that Ken just bought one of that I recommend to you. It was done by one of our former speakers, Bruce Sterling. It's called Holy Fire. Uh, it's a science fiction novel. It's the best thing about uh, life extension, the way it may play out. Uh, he refers to the medical industrial complex, for example, that runs society in just a few years. Maybe it is already. Okay, here's the first question from Sue. Sue's where? Raise your hand. So, yeah, right there. Uh, won't there be some nasty unintended political consequences when today's youth uh, become virtually enslaved in order to pay for the old age support uh, for the support of oldsters? Boy, that's a great question. Um, I have two answers. First answer. When I wrote Age Wave, which was my eighth book, actually, I, I wrote a whole chapter. Uh, I predicted there would be age wars. That I thought that when young people realized that they were contributing such an enormous percentage of their lives to support an increasingly growing and possibly undeserving old age set of entitlements, um, that they would rebel. And there would be battles between the generations. I have, over the last 15 years, come to a different conclusion that's still on the first point, and that is that I don't think the young generations are that well organized or orchestrated to reach those conclusions. That what happens is, is that if you're struggling and you're not making enough money and you lost your job, you wind up taking it out on your wife or your neighbor. That it just creates this sense of frustration and bitterness and, and angst and, 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 and drama among youth without them necessarily connecting it. My worry is that a little bit like one of those Three Stooges clips where, you know, Moe reaches out to hit Larry and Larry ducks and Curly gets it in the nose, that the boomers who have always been viewed as narcissistic, by the time we get there and it's our turn, the generations or the media will draw that connection and the boomers will be blamed for being, you know, totally, you know, uh, indulgent. By the way, I will comment that the boomers are currently paying 58% of all taxes, largely without complaint are supporting their parents, are putting their kids through school, have the highest volunteer rate of any age group in the country is they're sort of shoring up a lot of the social infrastructure in their communities and are actually not that narcissistic when it comes to taking out. But they do believe when their time comes, here you go. But there'll be so much of us, so many of us, it's conceivable that the youth will rise up at that moment. But it has not happened as yet. Second, I think the future still hasn't been written. I think our generation will have an existential crossroads. We can either do the AARP thing, and as we grow old, we can become protective, we can put walls around ourselves, and we can suck the young generations dry. That's a choice. Or we can say, perhaps that idealistic streak when we had when we were young, perhaps the consciousness in which we've raising, in which we've participated, lead us to a view of maturity with leaders in which our purpose in life is to give back, is to be the elders, is to be the mentors, is to be the contributors. And you know, I still hold out the promise that our generation, rather than only having been viewed as America's biggest, could still be viewed as America's grandest. How we treat 
the world in maturity is still up to us to decide. If we go the first route, I think it's going to be bad news. The second route could be quite spectacular. A version of that, uh, another question from Eric Boyd, where are you? It's helpful to raise your hand just because... Hey, I see him. Okay, you got him, great. Um, are you concerned about the cost of longevity treatments creating a have-have-not world? Is such a world dangerous or merely unfair? I love that last sentence. There's um, the Larry Ellison resentment uh, yeah, category um, here. You know, uh, people today with money go to Mayo Clinic for their exams, and they get healthier foods, and they have better doctors. And we've already got such a dis separation occurring. I'm, I just started reading a book last night, blanking on the name, but in the first chapter, the author describes that there's a 15-mile train ride from one aspect of Virginia through Washington, D.C., to one of the suburbs. And with every mile that goes by, the life expectancy elevates one and a half years. And so we've already got such a thing, but the idea of really pumping it out. I'm, I'm, I have to tell you, I have mixed views about it, because one part of me says, I sure hope I have enough money where I can keep my loved ones and my family. Like, if, if, my, if there was some therapy that I could buy from my dad so that he could see again, I would spend pretty close to everything I have. And would I worry that other people might not be able to afford it? The honest truth is I would probably try to do whatever I could so that my father could see again. And my mother wouldn't struggle with what she struggles with. And would I feel the same way about my wife and my kids? Probably yes. Is that greedy and self-centered? Yes. So am I worried about a world in which a small group of people could conceivably control the cure? Yeah. Do I think it's coming? No question. Good question not being talked about. Got a specific one for you. How do you, sorry I don't know what it's from, how would you explain the uh, difference life expectancy in Sweden, Denmark, and Norway as it showed up in your charts there? Uh, very similar populations but very different life expectancy. What's that about? Yeah, I, I honestly am not sure. Uh, I've spent time in that part of the world but I don't feel smart enough to give you a smart answer. Probably has something to do with alcohol and getting pickled. <laughs> Northern countries. Sorry. Um, how do you think the forms of ageism, um, I mean, we remember the famous song, Kill Your Parents, right? Uh, how do you think the forms of ageism will unfold in this life extension world? Boy, that's a really interesting question. How will I feel they will unfold? Um, let me say that I think we're in a period of profound ageism now. Uh, if you're an older individual trying to get a job, you're going to have a really hard time. Uh, companies, you know, dump older people using all sorts of clever techniques and such because they, don't, they want young people in their scene. I'll give you an example. How many of you like the show American Idol? I happen to like the show. How many of you watched it when it ran last year? Okay, so it was an interesting idea, the idea that people could come out of their communities and if they had some talent, they could have a chance to be a star. American dream and the entertainment thing. So there's a little bit of a buzz early on that they might be racist because they weren't voting for the people of color at the level that some people thought they might. And it got a lot of media attention. We're not racist. Then there was a joke made. Oh, they're homophobic. But, you know, if you go to their website, you can't be over 28 and enter the contest. 
That seems to be perfectly acceptable to everybody. If it said you can't be Jewish, or you can't be a woman with dark hair, or you can't be from the Middle East, people would go crazy. We have so much ageism surrounding us that we find it totally and utterly acceptable. So first, I think it's got to be uprooted and broken down. Second, I think it's got to be replaced, and it can't be replaced with some romantic 19th century, all the elderly ought to be loved and respected, because we've grown up in a meritocracy, and you know that some of your older relatives are worth being respected, and some are not. Um, and then there might conceivably be this other ages, and ties into your question, which would be a, not a, an ageism based on, I think you're less than me, or I think you're unattractive or undesirable, or you have nothing to match me with, but a kind of an ageism uh, built on this, you seem to have the power, and you seem to have the money, and you seem to be dominating society unfairly, which would be a more of this sort of age war dynamic. Um, I'll just say one thing about what you might do. You know, I'm, I'm an old-fashioned guy, I guess. You know, I watched Gloria Steinem this week answer questions. She, she's intending on spending her next decade in this sort of ageism uh, uncovering the lies and the deceit and the disrespect to older women, which I applaud her for. It's a tough battle. I mean, America is, uh, views itself to be such a liberal and fair population, yet the two industries that have the absolute highest rate of age discrimination lawsuits are the advertising industry and the media. So the very engines of culture creation are the most ageist. So our view, not only about older people, and, but who we could become is so distorted uh, currently that I just, you know, I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm, you know, I'm an old-fashioned guy. I think you just got to get up and you got to keep banging on that and you got to keep telling the truth and you got to keep whacking the powers that be and getting people to think about it differently. And, you know, a lot of the ads that you see on television now that are positive geared to older people I help create. Um, a lot of the products that are in the marketplace, I help create. So my battle has been one of trying to bring an enlightenment to this disrespect. But I don't think there's an easy, simple formula for how the world clears itself of ageism. But I think that a sensitivity will be how the elders of tomorrow behave. And again, if we behave in a contributing way, in a fair way, in a, and there's a sense of generational justice, I think we're in a good game. But if it's perceived... You know, when the greatest generation passes away and now it's the boomers, you know, the narcissist, um, it could be an ugly story. But it's up to us. That's the neat thing about the future. We get to create it. Okay, two more um, questions. I know you read science fiction, or I learned that tonight. I love science fiction. So I got two speculative questions for you. One uh, is from Sean. Where are you? Right here. Ten years ago, we would have laughed you out of the room for uh, describing the effects of Viagra. In fact, uh, when a friend of ours, Joel Groh, first described it to uh, Bill Gibson, the author of Neuromancer, uh, his answer was, it does what? <laughs> what will we laugh you out of the room for now that we will regret ten years from now? What would you speculate is, is that oh, bizarre? And wonderful. First, an editorial footnote. You know, Viagra was a medication that was being studied for angina. It was a vascular uh, medication. And uh, as you guys know, the clinical trials were taking place, and the results were coming back very tepid. It didn't seem to work. But when people were asked to send back the pills they didn't take, nobody sent any back. <laughs> True story. 
And, and, and during the first 18 months of clinical trials, that was the only outstanding piece of information, which is nobody seemed to return any unused pills. There must be a side effect. And so that's an interesting story about medicine, that often it's the side effects that lead to tomorrow's blockbusters. What do I think might happen in the next decade that right now you would either laugh at me or think me extreme? I think in the next decade what Michael West talked about last month will occur. I think we will be able to, to influence and control biologic aging. I think that whether or not people will be permitted to do it within the United States or will have to go to Singapore or London or uh, Brazil or something to get the technology, I, I think that it will be there. It will be a bit of a wild, wild west because I think it unleashes considerations unknown. What else? Do I think um, that we will have the capacity either to get replacement parts for our organs or have uh, pigs grow them? You know that's going on now. That's sort of a way of getting around the ethical religious stuff that pigs' organs are remarkably similar to humans and they're actually genetically influencing pigs so that they will grow a kidney almost identical to your own and so that if you need a spare part, you might say, well, I wouldn't want a pig in me, but you know, can I have some bacon for breakfast tomorrow morning? And you've already got a piece of a pig in you. But the idea of farming animals for body parts, I think, will be commonplace. I, 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 um... That raises some interesting kosher issues. But... Yeah, I guess. You know. <laughs> in the next 10 years, you know, when you go out 50 years, it gets wilder. In the next 10 years... Um, do I think you're going, like you saw it last month, there was a, what, a 56-year-old or 57-year-old woman who gave birth to twins. Do I think it's conceivable that whether people want to or not, that 60 or 70-year-olds will uh, be able to conceive or have some sort of a dynamic that way? Yeah. Do I think we might cross the germline in the next 10 years so that you can literally have children born, um, you know, sort of the opposite of progeric kids, so you could have children born who could be sort of like the immortals? that you might have children born that are born with the capacity to live two or three hundred years. It wouldn't shock me if something like that came out in the next ten years and how the world would react to that would be pretty darn interesting. And last, um, I would love to see an end to Alzheimer's. I would love to see, uh, in addition to all the way out, kind of wild and interesting and provocative stuff, man, what I'd like for some powerful leader to get up and, you know, like the John F. Kennedy thing, we're going to put a man on the moon. We will see a world without Alzheimer's in the next 10 years because I'm extremely concerned about what happens to the mind if the body lives longer but the mind becomes dysfunctional. So would I like to see that? Would I love to see you in 10 years and say, man, isn't that amazing, just like with polio? We now no longer have Alzheimer's or, and by the way, so, so that many of you know, it, it, it's not the day you, for, you can't remember where your keys are. Usually 10 years, 20 years before is when it begins. So we're all on the track. Would I like to see that story, history rather than future? Yeah. Good. Uh, one more. Let me lengthen your now just a bit. And uh, basically the demographic frame that you've been living with for 30 years is pretty much the last century and even more pretty much the, the sort of current lifespan generation. Uh, you so far reach about you know, 20, 30 years into the future. But these are trend lines. Demographics is, as you said, is mm -hmm. the, you know, the pace of life. Mm -hmm. Think about the pace of life as you've been looking at it and put it in, say, a uh, next 200-year time frame. Uh, generation succeeding generation, more and more generations alive at the same time, uh, the aging demographic, 
uh, presumably increasing. It doesn't just stop in 2030 whenever our graphs happen to come to an end. What's the long-term perspective here? I mentioned to Stuart uh, the book I just finished reading the other day. is a book called Evolution by Stephen Baxter, who's a science fiction writer. Arthur Clarke has just selected to be his co-author on all his final books. And it's a novel that begins 150 million years ago and it ends 50 million years in the future, which is a pretty good spread. Um, if you speed up these demographics, what you get is a world largely of white European type folks getting old and um, seeking to maintain usefulness in their old age with, uh, by the way, I think a lot of this longevity and life extension stuff is going to have a lot of dings and it's like software, you know, it's going to have a lot of dings and dangs, you know, your things are not going to work quite as good as we cook them up to. And then you've got people of color, you've got people in different regions of the world who are proliferating, who are not having 1.2 children that you go to the Middle East, they're having six, seven kids each. And so if you were to speed those two trend lines up, what you see is that the population configurations uh, become a particular group of old, powerful, uh, and attempting to preserve their youth nations being taken over in terms of demographics and population by people of different uh, backgrounds, different religious views, and uh, different ethnic origins who um, we get to the tribal thing, uh, ultimately. That, you know, you've got tribes battling out for domination of this planet. And, and, and peculiarly, if you were to look at that same global map, those countries, you probably looked at the countries turning dark blue, but you didn't look at the ones that were yellow. And, you know, you've got regions of the world where they're like, you know, you go to Iraq, you go to Iran, the birth rates are still at six or seven. They're multiplying throughout the world. That's fine. But that's kind of some of the demographic head-to-head -head that's going to happen over the coming years. Um, that's the, that's the coming 40 years. Um, does it keep going in that way, or does it then shift? So the birth rate is plummeting. We had a talk earlier by Philip Longman that birth rate is actually plummeting right, everywhere. Yeah, it's going from six down to you know, four, and then down but to it's, three. But it's plummeting in Europe, Japan, the United States. It's not plummeting in the Middle East, and so on and actually, so forth. it is. In India. It is. It's plummeting. China, it is, because of current actions. Yeah. All right, so let's assume that one. Uh, which is, I don't completely agree with it. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen in a couple hundred years? I honestly, um, it's hard for me to imagine that, that simply the longevity story will be the dominant story. It's mm -hmm. easier for me to imagine that issues having to do with energy, uh, availability of resources, uh, uh, peculiar uh, battles among tribes, will flare up and conceivably erupt in strange ways. So when I, when I imagine if none of that occurs, it becomes a have and have not world. You get the long-lived empowered populations, highly educated, lots of infrastructure, and, and uh, battling those who want it their way. I know I'm not giving you a satisfying answer because I don't, I don't have the capacity at this moment to think the way you do in terms of 200 years out. I more feel that these next 10 to 40 years are going to be where this phenomenon breaks loose. Mm -hmm. And what happens on the other side of that? Some of the things I've just mentioned. Mm -hmm. I, I tell you what, I will think about that some more. And give me a shot. I'll come back and maybe throw some thoughts on your website. Yes, please. Ken Dykewald, thank I you. I know you've covered a lot of ground. Thank you guys for your patience. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. By the way, 
I want to say one quick thing. I know it's late, and I went way longer than I thought I would because I was trying out some thoughts that I don't usually get to try out. But for me, the issue isn't that I'm right or I'm wrong. But the issue is, man, I've been thinking about this one a lot. So I'm just trying to throw out a lot of things for us all to be thinking about because it's a complex and powerful set of circumstances for which there is no precedent. I'd also like to say that um, there's a little box there in the back of the room that just asks for a donation of whatever. Uh, none of us are getting paid to do this. We do it because we think uh, you know, public forums to consider interesting themes uh, are great. But if any of you guys want to throw a few bucks in there, Stuart's not asked me to do this. It would sure help everybody keep, you know, keep the rent paid and get more emails out and so on and so forth. So tell your friends, come to other meetings. Thank you guys for coming out tonight. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.